I bring you blessings from rural America. Um, I'm a family physician in rural eastern Tennessee. I live in a small town of 2,000 people. I serve at a community health center that takes care of the poor in Appalachia. We have been living in this town for almost 14 years, and we have witnessed God's glorious presence in these beautiful mountains. So, as you figured, um, I was born in India. I grew up in Chicago. I married that beautiful woman over there from New York, um, uh, the woman in the brown, not all the women coming in right now, <laughs> lest you think I've got a harem. It's the woman over there, the short Indian woman. Let's make that clear. I did my family medicine training in California, and many people ask me, how did you end up in Tennessee? And oftentimes, they sound sorry for me. Um, other times, um, they make it seem like I must be serving out some sort of purgatory or running from the law or whatever. And I get it because being a rural family doc in the Appalachian Mountains um, is not every little Indian boy's dream. Um, in, in fact, it wasn't mine, and it, it was more about learning to discern God's will. And that's really why I'm here speaking to you all. I'll be honest, through the years, I've had to ask myself the question, where am I? Living in rural Jellicoe, Tennessee, I've had to ask the question, why am I here? And what am I doing here? I remember one particular patient encounter that brought this home. This is, this is one of my early encounters with my patients. I was doing an OB ultrasound. I'm a family doc. I do OB. I do C-sections. I do ultrasounds. And so one time, and I love doing ultrasounds. I absolutely love ultrasounds. And so I was doing this ultrasound in this young woman um, uh, that one of my partners had referred over for a regular 18-week ultrasound. And so I walked in, and I, use, I, do, I, I do my usual greeting, which is, Hello, I'm Dr. Thomas, and I will be doing your ultrasound today. This was received with cold silence and a, a slight roll of the eyes. I wasn't sure where the negativity was coming from because she, I'd never met this woman. I hadn't had the opportunity to piss her off. And so... <laughs> so uh, so I proceeded to position her for the ultrasound, trying to just kind of move on, and, and squirted some gel on her belly. And again, silence. And this is usually when we squirt the gel, that's usually when we hear the ooh, that's cold, or yuck, that feels uh, gross, or whatever. But all I heard was just silence. It was when I laid the ultrasound probe on her belly that she finally broke her silence. She said, well, I have never been touched by a Korean before. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> she repeated herself, just in case I didn't hear her. I have never been touched by Korean before. I is there any part of me that looks Korean? <laughs> Enough that there's nothing wrong with being Korean, but really, do I look it? I was shocked, and, and, and I had been called a lot of things in my life, and truly, <laughs> as, a, as a country doc, you're... you're Called a lot, um, uh, but I, but never Korean. Um, so with a polite chuckle, I try to just uh, let it go. Um, I, with a polite chuckle, I told her, "Well, wow, that's the first time I had ever been called a Korean before." But she wasn't amused. She, recognizing maybe she had chosen the wrong people group to offend, she replied, "Whatever you people are, I've just never been touched by one of youans." And so that night, I found myself asking the question, where am I? What am I doing here? I thought God had called us to India. 
I thought God had called us to, to be with people that looked like us, that talked like us, that, that resounded like us. Several years ago, our family was invited to a baby shower for one of the Hindu families in our town. And yes, they owned the one motel in our town, too. <laughs> I, had delivered, I had delivered their firstborn son, and they really wanted my family to join them in this, this celebration of their child. And the shower was this huge event. Indian families that owned hotels along I-75 all came um, to this occasion to Little Jellico. Everyone was dressed in beautiful saris and, uh, uh, and uh, all the Indian garb that the men wear. There was delicious, spicy food. Um, it was just beautiful. It was just a sweet celebration of culture. We had such an awesome time learning, learning um, their traditions and celebrating Indian community. I did not grow up in a Hindu home, so I, I, I mean, this is all new to me, too. And after the party, I overheard my eight-year-old son taking my, uh, taking, um, my daughter aside. My eight-year-old son, um, by the way, was born in India. He's, he's adopted. Um, so this kind of puts things into a little bit more perspective. But my eight-year-old son took my, uh, my daughter aside and said, I've got some questions, Chach. Um, what do you think that dot on all those women's heads are? I mean, what, what is that? Were they born with that? And do you think Daddy can cut it off? <laughs> and again, I found myself wondering, wh- where am I? What am I doing? And what am I doing to my children? And in that they will never understand cultural identity as an Indian. Over the past 19 years of medical training and practice, the answer to these questions has really been stored for us in Psalm 23. It explains what this Indian man is doing in the rural south. It's the reason why this person, this, this couple who had vowed to be overseas is now in the Appalachian Mountains. Psalm 23 is one of my favorite chapters, favorite, uh, favorite um, chapters of the Bible because it gives me a bird's eye view of what God is doing. It is, it's a reminder. Psalm 23 is a reminder of God's leading, his security, his reward, and especially during difficult times. And this is why discerning God's will, I keep coming back to this. Um, uh, This chapter, this verse, uh, this whole chapter to remind me. Now remember, Psalm 23 is something that's usually spoken where? Funerals, deathbeds, right? It's basically what people say at the end of life. But really, I have chosen this as, as my life chapter. Remember, the psalm was written by King David, right? Who was King David? He was, a, he was a king. He was a powerful king. He commanded great wealth. He commanded thousands of men. He won great wars. He was revered in many lands. And he was a man after God's own heart. Right? But he didn't, it wasn't always like that for him, was it? He was a shepherd. He was a shepherd who knew his sheep. He was a shepherd who understood what it meant to be a caring, gentle leader but also understood the, the, the needs, the basic needs of a dumb animal, right? He knew what they feared. He knew what they needed. When you think of a shepherd, you think of a poor, lonely man wandering in the hills and, and with, um, <clears throat> with tattered and grimy clothes. You think of a man tending a herd of, of very smelly sheep. To sheep, the shepherd is the source of food, of water, of a provision of guidance. Without the shepherd, they are lost. 
They hunger and they thirst. Isaiah 40 tells us that the role of the shepherd is to what? Lovingly gather his sheep, hold them gently, protect them, provide for them, and even, uh, and even lead them to where they need to go. And this is the image that King David is calling upon. He is calling upon this, this vision of this, uh, this man who is walking a lonely life, wandering a lonely life with a bunch of sheep as his best friend. And he starts with, the Lord is my shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And that's profound because he is saying, my king, he's also my shepherd. My every need and every desire is, is in his care. David has experienced the first-hand experience of being carried in the arms of a shepherd. David understands what it means to be carried close to the heart of a shepherd. And he understands what it means to be gently led. And I can tell you, this is a struggle that I have because, frankly, in our American world, we want to be in control. The last thing I want to do is give that control over to someone else. And that's exactly what David does. Living in a small town, I find myself still struggling with this, saying, will our kids get the best educational experience that they need? Will they get enough of the spiritual motivation that they need? Will they get the extracurricular activities? Will we have enough savings in our account to take care of them if they ever, if they ever um, get out of this town? You know, But I'm learning to trust in the voice of my shepherd as he leads on. David writes, he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. This is one of the most beautiful visions of this chapter, one of quiet restoration, one of tranquility, one of peace. How beautiful are rolling green pastures. Makes you want to run barefoot. Makes you want to just play. I mean, this is, this is like sound of music. Beautiful, right? And, and frankly, this is part of what Jellico looks like. So if this is a plug for people to come to Jellico, this is what we look like. <laughs> and that's me. <laughs> um, um, Quiet waters, how soothing, how soothing are quiet brooks for a stream. We know the healing that those waters have, and we yearn for that. We pant like, a, a, like that, um, uh, uh, like that uh, deer. We pant for streams of water. All of us yearn for those peaceful pastures in our lives, and all of us seek those quiet brook, brook experiences. We want peace, we want restoration, we want healing. And the Good Shepherd, he leads us to just that. What a beautiful and amazing vision. But there's bad news. The chapter continues. He says, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The question is, you mean we got to move? You mean you want us to move? This is so awesome. We, you want us to move? You want us to move, Angelica? You want us to move from these green pastures and just beautiful waters? You want us to leave God? This is one of the hardest decisions um, and the hardest concepts for many of us to understand. Why would God want us to move on? Why can't the party go on forever? Why can't we stay in our comfort zones? It shakes our world to, to, to leave the peace that we have finally found, right? It's hard for many of us to leave those fertile pastures and refreshing waters. But let me offer several compelling reasons. The first and foremost is that poop stinks. <laughs> Truth is, those green pastures won't remain green and abundant forever with a whole bunch of sheep grazing on it and pooping on it. 
And that's the truth, is that the longer that we stay in our comfort zones, the longer that we stay just happy and content in where we are, the truth is, is that 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 pasture is needing to be resupplied. That shepherd must lead a sheep to other pastures that can support his flock, and sheep must follow his wise leading. Green pastures and still waters just don't extend forever. Our shepherd must lead us to a different site. He must move us on. The second reason, and this is a little bit more painful to learn, is that sometimes one of the most difficult jobs of a shepherd is to teach a sheep to follow and to follow obediently. Initially, he prods them along, and, and he initially, he, he tries to, to love them towards following him. The sheep has to learn to follow the steps, has to, fo- to learn to hear his voice, and learn that this man knows what he's talking about, and I'm going to follow. But occasionally, there's a sheep that tends to wander regardless of what the shepherd wants him to do, putting itself and the rest of the flock in great danger. For this sheep, the shepherd must take drastic measures to, t- to help the sheep learn his lesson. And this is hard to understand, but what the shepherds would do was it would take the hind legs of that sheep and snap it. So if he had a sheep that was wandering all the time, if he had a sheep that was wayward all the time, he would take that sheep and instead of, instead of saying, forget you, he took that sheep and broke the hind legs of that, um, of that sheep. And what, would, what he would do afterwards is he would splint that, he would take that same sheep take, and splint that leg. But you know what would happen? The sheep would hobble. The sheep would need the shepherd. The sheep would have to, to be close to the shepherd at all times because guess what? He couldn't get around the way he used to. He couldn't run the way he used to. The leg ends up healing stronger than before. But at the end, you have an obedient sheep that didn't stray any longer. For some of us, that brokenness comes in divorce, in bankruptcy. It's in the church fallout. It's in the board of directors getting upset with you. It's, it's, in, it's in a fight with your partners. It's, it's something big, and that may be exactly what God is saying. I need you to bear with me. I need you to listen to me. The final reason we need to follow our shepherd to new ground is because we can't see the big picture. We as sheep, we're too busy. We're too busy eating, grazing, playing in the waters, and basking in the sun. Our heads are down. Our heads are usually down doing what we're doing. Our heads are down doing C-sections and delivering babies and, and, and um, doing dental care and saving, um, saving kiddos from um, uh, this trafficking or that trafficking. We are so busy. We've got our heads down. We've got things in our way that we can't see. We've got our children uh, that we have to look through. We've got to look through a, a lot of different things. And there's different boulders in our way. And we can't see what's ahead. The shepherd, however, has a different vantage view. He knows what's ahead. He knows the valley ahead. He knows that this pasture can't sustain us any longer. And he knows that we need to move on. Um, I remember Beth Moore um, in her Believing God series uh, 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 tells this great story about how she was walking um, uh, along this path and came to this little puddle. And in this puddle was a bunch of little ducks uh, playing and frolicking in in the little puddle of water. And she was really frustrated because what she knew is that along the path, just over the slope, was a huge lake. 
And all she could think of is, these poor ducks, they don't know what they're missing out on. She wanted to scream, hey guys, there is a lake over there. There's a pond over there. Go, get out of the puddle that you're in. And that is exactly what God is telling many of us. He is saying, hey guys, there's fuller pasture over there. There's cleaner water over there. There is my peace, my hope, my redemption for you over there. And I need you over there. Get out of your puddles. Go into the pond. So my get out of my pond moment was 15 years ago. Alan Vickers, the the physician recruiter for CMDA, called me. I was finishing up family medicine, uh, a family medicine residency in beautiful California, and this was beautiful. I mean, I just got to visit there with my son just last week, and I can tell you it's one of the most beautiful places I've been in. Um, it's on the coast. Um, uh, the mountains on one side, the coast is on the other, and it's blue waters. There's dolphins. I mean, it, it's, it's very picturesque. And that's where I did my residency. It was a tough life, but I survived. <laughs> um, <coughs> it's, a, it's a very tough residency. But um, but that's where I was finishing up my family medicine residency. And Alan, the physician recruiter for CMDA, called me up, and he asked me if I would consider joining a rural practice in eastern Tennessee. I laughed my head off at the prospect. <laughs> I, I did, because who? why would God call me to the south, where clearly we were called overseas? Why would it be Tennessee of all places? And being from the north, I had a lot of prejudice. And so um, I, I, you know, I wasn't Tennessee the home of the KKK. All I could picture was um, burning crosses in my yards and reruns of the Beverly Hillbillies. And, and, and so you could see I was probably not the, the most compassionate a person for God to call um, out of my pond, out of my puddle, and into a, uh, into my lake. Um, but fortunately, uh, this recruiter kept on. He persisted, and and he and he he just kind of laughed away my ignorance and allowed me to to speak and pray. Um, and, and because finally I heard um, what uh, he was trying to tell me was in Tennessee, um, I submitted. Um, before we knew it, we were interviewing with the Community Health Center in rural Appalachia. We found ourselves surrounded by a deeply passionate group of believers who dedicated themselves to the health care to the poor. We found a profound poverty that we never existed, that we never knew existed in America. Despite the beauty, despite the grandeur of the Appalachian Mountains, we found ourselves in a spiritually dark and dreary land that, des- that desperately needed Christ's followers to live it out. And this is not our dream. This is not the people that we thought we would be serving. But the peace of God was so palpable that that visit that when Jesse and I were driving away from Jellicoe, Tennessee 15 years ago, we just said, there's really no other place we could be. There's no use um, interviewing anywhere else. And actually, we, we didn't interview anywhere but Jellicoe, Tennessee. We accepted the position, not even bothering to, to submit our name else, anywhere else. The Good Shepherd was looking ahead. He knew how to best provide for these sheep, and, and, and he knew that it was time for us to move on. He saw the whole landscape. He also saw the danger ahead. In order to go from one pasture to another pasture, you have to travel through some deep, dark valleys. 
look at these beautiful mountains. Um, this is actually in the Tetons. Um, uh, my son and I got to go there, and it was a, a, an amazing visit where, where um, that whole Tetons were completely covered with clouds. And as Jonathan and I were walking up, the clouds just moved away. And it was, it was God saying, this is what I have prepared for you. That this is the mountaintop experience that I want you to have. This is the breathtaking view. This is what I want to take your breath away. And, and in the same way, that is what Psalm 23 says, because I've had my mountaintop experiences. As a family doc, I mean, if there's a plug-in, if there's students here, let me tell you, being a family physician is the best job in the world. No no bias at all. Um, but, but really, I love my job. Um, I have had some of the best experiences. I've been privy to some of the most beautiful births. I have seen these babies develop from small specks on an ultrasound to, to taking their first breath. And then Eventually, seeing them graduate kindergarten and then move on, and, and, and we're close to some of our, some of those babies I delivered 14 years ago, starting to have babies again, which is why we need people in rural medicine. Um, I have seen miracles and healings. I have wept at funerals for men, for women, and for little infants, all who have touched my life in profound ways. I've walked along some of the some of the, the greatest saints that I know. And I've battled my own share of demons along this battle. As a believer, I have seen men and women come to faith. I've baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've experienced and tasted the joys of faith. I don't share these things to tell you how awesome I am. I, I don't tell you this because I want to share how um, uh, uh, just all the things that I've done. But to say I love those mountaintop experiences. I love those mountaintop experiences, but you know what's the truth about that mountaintop experience? You can't live there. You cannot live on those mountaintops. We need pastures. In order to get to those pastures, we have to walk through some dark valleys. David cries out, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Those valleys in our lives can be quite deep, ever so dark, and and seem so endless. And David describes them as shadows of death. A valley can be a scary place. It can be dark. It can be, it's so hard that you can't see ahead. And you you really cannot climb out of it yourself. Early in my career, I experienced a a, a wave of cluster headaches, which are probably, um, it's equivalent to severe migraines about six to seven times a day for a whole year, off and on. It was a terrible, pretty crippling time of my career because I thought I, I had arrived, I thought I was doing all these things, and at a very young age, I got this um, uh, cluster of headaches. It was a deep, dark valley for me. I was surrounded by death. I was paralyzed by the fears and doubts for my future, for my family, for my practice. I was tormented by questions about God's love and his providence. I, could, I couldn't breathe because deep depression just overtook me. It was a dark valley. It was cold, it was dark, and it was a terrible time. The psalmist gives us two encouragements when we are there. He says, number one, these are only shadows. This is only shadows. This is is not death itself. This is only shadows. Just imagine what death looks like if these are just shadows of death. Number two, He says that the shepherd is with you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Remember, the rod and staff were used to prod, 
to fight off, to discipline, to pull sheep back to safety. The rod was a rod and staff were beautiful symbols of direction, of security, and wisdom and discipline. So when you're in these valley times, when the world seems dark and lonely, and you feel hopeless and helpless, be encouraged. These are only shadows, shadows of death. And also remember that these are the many, many valleys. If you're, if you're happy that you just got out of one, just prepare yourself because there's another one coming. Because remember, you can't just live in the same pasture and you can't live on that mountaintop. You've got to go through some valleys. Soon, you'll be standing on another mountaintop, feeling fresh wind on your face, looking down at the valley that you just traveled. One of the things that I've learned through the years is to basically, when I come out of these valleys, when I feel pretty good, is to, to turn around. And every four months, I do a little bit of a retreat of silence where I look back. And not just look back at the deep, dark valley that I just came out of, but look back at all the mountains, all the valleys, all the amazing things that I've seen, but then all the places that God got me through. And, and I allow that to be my time of prayer. That's my Ebenezer stone. Chapter continues saying, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So I never understood this verse, and there's probably some great theologian out there that probably does, but I never understood this verse. If there's a verse that really has baffled me about chapter 23, it's this verse. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. It seems so out of place. Here you've got the lowest, darkest valley point of your life. Here you are basically just, just really struggling. You're, it's, it's dark, it's lonely, and you don't know what to do. And out of nowhere, God does what? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. So in the lowest valley point of your life, God throws a huge banquet. I don't get it. Why would God throw a banquet? Why would God throw a banquet when you are in your darkest valley? He, here you are, tired, lonely, scared, not knowing what to do, and God prepares a huge banquet table. And what does he do at that banquet table? Huh? Excuse me? He puts your enemy on, in front of you, exactly. Again, does not make sense. Banquet table, dark valley, and God invites all your best friends, your enemies, right? And that's exactly what I feel happens, right? That's exactly what happens. He, he, in the middle of my greatest struggles, um, I'm surrounded by my demons, by my enemies, by my fears. I'm convinced my, my demons have their own engraved name cards at this diner, at this dinner table. And they come bearing my insecurities, my failures, and my every sin. They come to gloat, to scowl, and to accuse me while I'm at my lowest point. Can any of you, do you guys resonate with this? Where it's usually when you're just broken. It seems that every one of those lies come alive. Every one of those fears come alive. And I never understood why. Because for some of us, um, your enemy is your singleness. Some of us, it's debt. It's pride. It's addictions. Others, it's your faithlessness, your, your hopelessness, your self-centeredness. Whatever your demons are, they come out in the dark of night in the most... Um, a, a, a susceptible period of your life to come haunt you, to accuse you. 
And it's in this chaos and confusion that something truly happens. And this is how I've understood it. You basically um, are seated, seated at this banquet table. You've got your enemies looking and just glowing over you. And you know what happens? And this is what's powerful about Psalm 23 for me. In, in Psalm 23, the Lord pulls back his chair. He, he pushes back that chair. And he comes to you in front of all your enemies and he anoints your head with oil. It's, that's when God shows himself to say, you are my beloved son. You are the one that I have favor in. I have called you. I have blessed you. And in front of all your enemies, something powerful happens. You are anointed by the king of kings. You are given the prince. You are given the, a blessing from the prince of peace. And he is no longer your shepherd. He's your king. He's the one that has commanded and charged you to go out and do great things. And something happens at that table where all of a sudden your enemies are basically said, do not touch this child. This is my son. I have called him to do the things that I've asked him to do. And he is being faithful. And with that, your enemies watch and gnash their teeth with, with envy. Whenever the king anoints you and crowns you with a crown of righteousness for being his faithful servants, your enemies are silenced. So David continues, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. We will come across some of these paths that seem a lot more tempting, a lot more secure, a lot greener. Uh, and sometimes we want to take those tempting paths, right? So let me tell you, this couldn't be more true in my life. When I'm having a bad day at work, when I'm in conflict with someone, when I'm in a dry place in my faith, when I forget my calling, a more lucrative job in Chicago seems to always be very appealing. There's a, a more comfortable pew in the back seat of a ritzy church that I would rather be sitting at. I would, I would rather be in a carefree life where everything seems, quote unquote, more satisfying. We know that that's what happens. Every, every pasture seems greener, but that's not the pasture that God might be calling you to. During these seasons, I have to convince myself that I, that I end up trying to convince myself that I need these things, that I deserve these things, that, I, that God wants me to have them. And that's usually what I'm feeling in my, in my sadness and my self-pity is I need something more. I need more money. I need more prestige. I need my children, quote-unquote, to be safe. I mean, I've got to use my children um, as, a, as a cloak for my, my own needs, right? Um, I need, I need, I need. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And then I think God is calling me to have them. And this is where goodness and mercy comes in. Just like two sheepdogs yapping at the side, um, at our sides when we stray from the right path, we've got goodness and mercy. They, they chase us back to the fold. They're basically looking out for what's good for us and what is merciful in that time. They're gentle despite our disobedience. The shepherd is leading a flock of innocent and at times foolish wandering sheep who are quick to stray and quicker to forget their master. And grace and mercy just like two faithful sheepdogs are the marks of our shepherd saying, I am not giving up on you. I'm, I'm going to set my dogs on you in their grace and mercy. And so what's our final destination? Eventually those paths lead to not yet another pasture or a quiet stream, 
but to our home, our master's home, our home in heaven. You can almost hear King David's sigh of relief when he declares, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The days of searching for food and water, from running from predators, from being cold and weary will be over. The days of crying out in fear and desperation in our valleys because we, we're, we're fearful, because we're alone, because we're single, because we, we're in debt, because, because, because we find ourselves finally at home. He's leading us home. That's the end game in this. This is, this is where this is all going. He is leading us home. And it's through this journey that we learn His voice and we learn to trust. All the joys of this world will never compare to living under the security and love of our King. All the sorrows of our valley times will never shadow, will never overshadow nor steal the rejoicing that we will have in our home. So this journey has taken me from a lucrative position in California. I was actually offered a position at the, at the residency that I was at, um, but I turned it down. This journey has taken us hundreds of miles from our families in Chicago and in and, 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 and New York. Um, it's taken us hundred miles, uh, hundreds of miles from our parents, which isn't so bad. Um, but <laughs> if they were in the room, I'd make it seem sadder. Um, but this journey has taken me away from um, a glamorous mission field overseas uh, with a, a people uh, with a people group that was a lot more like me. Instead, the Lord has called me to a different journey. And to walk alongside a population of the U.S. whose voices simply have been forgotten or not heard. It's the rural poor. To serve a group of people who, despite their poverty, demonstrate their, their tremendous gratitude with a jar of jelly, with a basket of vegetables, and occasionally a bottle of moonshine. <laughs> God has called me to serve a group of people who, despite their own paralyzing battles, are the first to extend a warm hug and a toothless smile. God has brought me to a place where my patients are my friends and my family, to a place where Walmart and church are an extension of my medical offices. I'd be lying if I said that it's been easy or a natural fit. Knowing God's will will never be the answer, but rather a testing and seeking of a lifetime. Just a couple of weeks ago, I'm sorry, a couple of months ago, Jesse and I were running, and um, we were um, our, our youngest son, who's now 13. Um, he, uh, he wanted to go running with us, and we got to the park, and he's like, I, I just want to shoot some hoop. So he, 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 Jesse and I said, we'll go running, we'll go uh, do a couple laps um, and come back, um, and you play. So the first lap, we came around, and we saw our son. He was playing with another kid, um, playing basketball, and we're like, oh, that's cool. He's making a kid, and he's, he's made a friend. And so... Um, and so uh, we came back the next time around, and we realized he was by himself again. And we said, hey, Joseph, are you all right? What happened? And he's like, well, um, we were having fun. Then his mom saw me and said, get away from that black kid. And, um, and uh, so he had to go home. And, th- and that was pretty, pretty shocking. But, you know, of course, my son's like, yeah, they're pretty done. They don't know I'm Indian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait till they call you Korean. <laughs> um, but, so it hasn't been an easy fit, but it's been actually a, a more of a fit for me than it was moving to California, believe it or not. Um, I want you to look at this shocking map of, about rural poverty. And before you guys tune out and say, whoa, that's too busy, I understand. Um, but let me, it, 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 it gets easier as I explain it, I think. Um, it's a busy map, but let me break this down. 
Um, the national rural poverty rate in 2013 was 14.5%. The poverty rate for rural areas is 16%. Okay? Now, if you can blur your eyes a little bit, the blue areas are rural counties with poverty rates less than the national average. So those people are doing well. So all the blue, so blue is good. And we're not talking Democrats or Republicans. Blue is good. Blue is good. Um, um, but the red is where people are living in extreme um, or very low poverty. These are the rural counties. And as you can see, when you step back, there's a lot more orangish red than there's blue. The actual poverty rate, again, is 16% in rural America. This is compared to 14.5%. Rural Americans, however, have the same health issues that plague inner city and the, uh, and the international mission field. When we look at the need, we're looking at epidemic drug abuse. Um, in the past 10 years, we have seen a skyrocketing number of babies who are born withdrawing to drugs um, in our communities, especially in Jellica, what we see is just a huge exponential rise. So much so that Blue Cross Blue Shield came to our our little town, to our little clinic, and said, "What are you guys doing?" <laughs> and we're like, "We're not prescribing it." Um, and, and it turns out a lot of our patients are going um, to these pain clinics and pain mills and whatever, and coming back hooked on drugs, and then they're hooked during their pregnancy, and so these little babies are being are, are born with what we call neonatal abs. Syndrome, and each baby that's born with neonatal abstinence syndrome equals about two months in the ICU, equals about seventy thousand dollars at Children's Hospital. Okay, and and we uh, this year alone we've already seen nine hundred babies in the state of Tennessee in the state of Tennessee, but nine hundred times seventy thousand—it's a lot of money that's going just in Tennessee. But anyway, epidemic drug abuse, and you can imagine the, the, the travesties that's associated with that, including trafficking. We've got staggering teenage pregnancy rates. We've got painful dental decay. We've got horrible mental health issues that can't be addressed. We've got illiteracy. We've got abuse of all kinds. We've got morbid obesity and malnutrition and uncontrolled control, uh, chronic illness. Unfortunately, rural populations are older. And with that, we have lower education levels as well as income levels. And more likely, the rural communities are more likely to smoke be obese, and be physically inactive than the urban population. But you know what the difference is? The difference is resources. The, the main issue is resources. And then I'm not talking about money. I think, I think the feds can throw more and more and more money into this, and it just gets us deeper and deeper into sin. It's not the resource of money. It's the resources of people. It's resources of people like you and me, people, who, uh, healthcare workers, of specialists, of mental health workers, of counselors, of dentists, of nurses, of teachers, of engineers, of contractors coming in, godly men and women who are committed to, to living out the gospel amongst the poor in rural communities. Unfortunately, despite the great needs in rural America, there's a huge disconnect with a number of believers who would even consider moving into these areas. The truth is, is that 20% of Americans live in rural America. So 20% of Americans live in these rural areas. Only 11% of the nation's physicians practice in these areas. 
only 10% of specialists practice in rural areas. And looking into the future, the numbers only get worse. And if you look at the, uh, the graduation trends, the nation faces a shortage of as many 150,000 doctors in the next 15 years. 30% of rural primary docs are, are or are nearing retirement age. Those younger, uh, and while the younger practitioners moving in are only 20% of the current workflow. So there's, there's a huge disconnect with the number of people retiring and the number of people coming in. So as we send out missionaries to foreign mission, uh, foreign mission fields, our healthcare needs in, in the U.S., especially in rural towns, are being met by foreign medical grads. We have personally seen the impact of this disconnect in our own clinic. As a clinic, we've had a vacancy for a family doc that does C-sections for the past five years. All we could do is we could work harder, longer, um, and, and keep moving those shifts around until we found a, a physician to join us, and we finally did this year. Um, if this wasn't depressing enough, where's the church? Um, here's a headline from um, the, uh, the Times Magazine article in 2009. The headline says, Rural Churches Grapple with a Pastor Exodus. Rural pastors are disappearing even faster than the general population, leaving graying congregations helpless in their time of greatest need. I read that and I thought, oh, this is what everyone, the secular press is writing about, about us. When, as our population gets older, we're, we're abandoning them. And why are the pastors disappearing? The article went on to say, the article um, goes on to cite some of these reasons, and one is rural towns can't afford 70 trade pastors. A town without a Starbucks scares them. A professor um, warning to a, a, a promising seminarian to shun a rural call. Don't go. You're too creative for that. Many small rural towns have poor congregations and cannot afford to support any pastors, um, especially seminary-trained ones. They have second jobs, and everyone is stretched thin. When people think about missions, they instantly think of going overseas or going into the inner city. And there's nothing wrong with those two, but I would encourage us to consider these towns, these rural towns who've been devastated um, by the recession and ravaged by poverty. Rarely do you think of rural communities where faith and mission go, are, are quickly drying up. Rarely are we thinking of rural Americans who are unable to find affordable access to their health issues. And because of this disconnect, rural Americans are forced to delay treatment, wait till their conditions worsen or are unbearable, and overutilize the ER. So I'm reminded of Isaiah. I'm sorry, uh, Jeremiah. I'm reminded of Jeremiah's uh, charge to the Israelites in, in, in Jeremiah. It's in verse 5 onward, and, and this is a, a powerful verse that a lot of people use. Um, it says, build houses. This is God actually talking to um, the Israelites. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give daughters to marriage for they too, so that they too might have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So that's God talking to Israelites. He's saying, build homes, plant gardens, marry, have children, do amazing things in that city. Do amazing things for God in that city. Um, 
and pray for that city. For if that city prospers, you too will prosper. But who was God uh, talking to? He was talking to exiles. God was talking to the Israel who were uh, Israelites who were exiles in that time. He was the Israelites were in Babylon. They were held captive by the Babylonians. They were hundreds of miles from their home. They were captives in a pagan land. They had seen their temple crushed. Instead of an inspiring letter from God that says, hey, I'm going to be there, I'm going to save you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to pull you out of that God-forsaken land, instead, what do they hear? Instead, they heard a mission call, a call to mission, to go to places that don't have God. Go to places where they need God. To, to, be, God, uh, to be a presence of God where God isn't. And that's exactly what they heard. It was a mission to settle in and engage in Babylonian culture. It was to pray for their captors. It was to be salt and light in a dark and depraved society. And praise God, praise God that that is exactly what they did. Because that's when we have stories of, of men like Daniel, Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego who were able to transform whole cultures, transform ways, transform the, the laws, to, to become rulers in that community and to make real change. So, church, there's a people there. There's a people out there that you may or may not have heard of that you may or may not be compelled to. But my encouragement is this. These are people that are precious to our body and we cannot neglect them. I challenge you to keep rural America on your radar at least. If you're in training, consider doing a rotation or a clerkship in a rural program. Just do one month and see some of the, the amazing benefits, some of the beauties of, of, of sitting there talking to these older people who would not have any health care if it weren't for you. Imagine delivering a little child in that, in that community and then watching that child withdraw and, 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 and squeal with withdrawal and then eventually seeing that child grow with hope because you are there. If you are overseas bound but have to pay off some loans, consider doing your loan repayment in a rural town before you go overseas. I cannot tell you how, how, uh, what a blessing it will be for you. Being in a rural town is more like being, in, um, being overseas in many ways. And, and it'll, ta- it'll train you to live without resources. It'll train you to become the specialist that you never thought you could be. Um, you do everything in rural towns. Learn to pray. Learn to pray for the lost, the hungry, and the hurting. Learn to pray for your brothers and sisters who already are faithfully serving in those forgotten places. Um, you know, some of the, is one of the reasons I come to this place over here every year, and I've been doing this since I think 2000 or whatever we come and go, is just to be encouraged by you all. I mean, I love the energy um, in, in, in this group here. I love that there are so many people passionate about medicine, about, about pouring themselves out to the poor, and I'm encouraged by you all. So go encourage your brothers and sisters who are already doing that work. Pray that God would raise men and women to answer this call to be salt and light. Um, I'm going to be sticking around uh, afterwards. My wife is over there. And again, she's um, in the corner. Um, she, um, she would love to talk. We've got stories that we can bore all of you for all day long um, uh, about what it means to serve. 
um, uh, a lot of it has to do with the good and the bad and the ugly. Um, and, um, you know, all the, the different issues that come up with family. Um, if you're married, um, you know, how about, how, about, um, how about jobs for your spouse? If you're not married, the, the pickings are slim. And so, um, and so um, you know, if you've got children, if you've got children, how do you educate them? Um, you know, what about church? I mean, frankly, one of the hardest things for us has been finding a church body that we really connect with. Um, and so we went off and created our own. We, uh, I'm one of the co-pastors of a church as well. Um, and so, uh, and then, and just loneliness. Whether you're married or not, loneliness is a part of being in a rural town. Um, and, and frankly, I feel like it's just part of modern culture. And I, I think you can be in the inner city and still be very lonely. Um, but um, in the rural, in the rural setting, we've got something to blame. Um, but anyway, I, I, Jesse, did you have anything, sir? And we, we do have um, re, uh, rotations for uh, mid-levels as well, so for PAs and nurse practitioners. So we've got a very strong program for that. So, any questions? Yes. That's a great question. The question is, how did I, uh, how did we finally make that decision of 
not going overseas like we really were, our trajectory was, um, and staying. And a huge, a huge thing is we actually did go overseas. Um, we actually met a uh, doc over here at the Louisville Missions Conference that um, uh, set us up with this amazing opportunity. And so we went overseas the year that we adopted our son. We went and did a one-week um, uh, uh, site survey, and it was amazing. It was perfect. It was exactly what I would, you know, wanted to do. It was me being able to train family docs to, in a residency setting to do everything that I was trained to do at Ventura. And it was perfect, but there was no peace. There was no peace. And there's different reasons for there not being peace, um, but a lot had to do with the fact that they would require us to actually put our kids in boarding school, and our kids were only five years old at the time. Um, so the education um, system really barred that, and I really feel like God has called me first to disciple my children um, uh, before making disciples. And so, so that, was, that was a huge part of it. But frankly, it's also who I am. I, when I was overseas, I realized I'm very OCD. I'm very type A. I'm very I need my medicines. If I order a TSH today, I want it tomorrow at the latest. And, and, and I couldn't have someone getting a script and, you know, going to another town uh, about three hours or uh, three days away and then coming back. Maybe, maybe not with a TSH level. I realized that um, if I didn't have a hot shower in the morning, I was miserable. And that would really affect our marriage. And so, <laughs> so... <clears throat> And so, so I realized in order to, to, to be a godly, loving husband to my wife, I needed to be not so miserable. And so there were different things that I realized about me during that season that said, this is really not who I am. Um, as much as I thought, I mean, this is my, I mean, I heard a call to mission when I was at Urbana Missions Conference in, in 1990. 1990. And then it was there that I felt like God was calling me to, to the one and only mission field, which is overseas. Um, but it changed. So there's more to that story. I can flesh it out, but probably not right now. I cannot tell you how many times I've had people come to me, just these little old people, come and hug me and say, you know what, I'm Indian too. I'm, Ab- I, 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 I'm Cherokee. I, I, I'm Cherokee. And, and I'd say, wow. <laughs> yeah, we must be related in a different way, but <laughs> we must be related. Um, one more question. Absolutely, yeah. So we do our, our yeah. So we do have a, a lab in our clinics, and most of the rural clinics do have labs. Um, it's specialists that we're hurting for, and so not just specialists that come to our town, but really it's an hour for our patients to get. And there's a huge mountain, and it's really difficult for them to pass that mountain. Believe it or not, when you've got poor transportation, we don't have gas money. You don't have money for kids, um, you know, babysitting and stuff. So to get them overseas is huge. I mean, sorry, get them, it's like going overseas. Um, 
to get them to the big city is, is huge. So we end up doing a lot of our own cardiology, a lot of our own OB, a lot of our own high-risk stuff we do. Um, with the advent of telehealth, we're doing some telehealth in our clinic, so doing telehealth ultrasounds. We're in the process of doing telehealth eye, eye scanning now. Um, uh, there's um, a bunch of really cool things that we're beginning to do, including telehealth uh, for behavioral health. That's going to be something that I'm hoping to get up by next year. So, um, uh, so we do have labs. We do have a local hospital. Um, but, you know, just to, to let you know, our, our hospital last year announced that they were leaving, that they couldn't afford being here. So for the past year, we've just been like, who's going to take over? And so there is another system coming in, but we don't know what that's going to look like. And that was one of the slides, is that most rural towns are losing, losing their hospital systems because it's not profitable. So, so you end up doing a lot of things and getting on the phone a lot and trying to do things that you never thought you could do. And, and initially it was very overwhelming, um, but you learn uh, that it's either you do it for them or that patient dies without any care. So. Guys, thank you so much. I appreciate the. Thank you.